I was the last man standing. I am the man, and the man feels no pressure. You are facing a fuel-injected suicide machine. Fear from the man that rules the world. I am the man. When I walk, the ground shakes. I am the master. Welcome back to the Vicious Circle. Sid, are you ready for some more? Man, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. We're going to jump right into it. Now, we were got up to your match with Dan Spivey, and uh, you did a three-week run there. My first question tonight was going to be, what prompted you to leave Memphis? But we just found out it's, it was a three-week deal. Right. So it wasn't that you wanted to leave. It's like... Well, this thing is you don't know what's going on. They used me for that. They said, okay, they might have had plans to bring me in later on or something like this, but the guy named Bob Polk I'd met in the gym, uh, he was from Knoxville. Him and Ron Fuller were partners. They also owned a hockey team together, and they and they pretty much ran Continental. So they asked me if I was interested in coming in. I think we already talked about that on the earlier one. I said, yeah. <clears throat> so when I got down there, what it was is at the time that, um, they were split the territory. Ron Fuller and Bob Polk took the northern end. Then a guy named David Woods, I told you a little bit about, bought the southern end. And that's who I was working for. And Robert, Ron's brother, just sort of stayed in the south part to be the booker, you know, to help, you know, make it transition for David Woods a little more easier. And I don't think Ron would have Robert around. Robert was a little bit of a little goofball, you know. Not, he wasn't smart like Ron, you know, a hard worker and all that. Okay. Well, who was running the Memphis thing at that point? Uh, actually, the, the guy that owns the Memphis part or owned it or did uh, ran it was Jerry Jarrett. And Jerry Lawler worked for Jerry Jarrett. And I think, now this is just speculation. Uh, what happened was when Pop Lawler got really popular, uh, he'd made it some kind of deal where he was going to take some of the wrestlers and get another uh, television station and do all this. So, he ended up somehow getting what's called points. So he got part of the percentage out of Memphis and anything that was run on this side of the territory. And then anything run, say, east side of Memphis, like Nashville, which that was Jarrett and Evansville and Louisville and all those other shows, that was Jarrett's money. But I think on anything west of Memphis, Lawler had a part of. So almost like a partner yeah. to a point. Okay. Right. Okay. Um so you, you you decided to come into Continental. What was the first thing you did you did in there? Well, the first thing we did is uh, I met downtown Bruno. I told you at a truck stop. Then we get there and get a hotel that's with a, just truly a flea bag, and got a newspaper. And the very first uh, thing we saw was a basement apartment. And utilities was included. Had a washer and a dryer and uh, all the things you needed, a kitchen and everything. So we jumped right in there and got that. And then we. Uh, Made our first TVs at the, the uh, fair, fairgrounds in Birmingham for Continental. No, I'm sorry. The first TVs were in Montgomery. Okay. Um, in During that time, you also did some New Japan stuff. Right. What happened was during Continental, um, the Japanese companies would come in and try to find some big guys to take to Japan. So they wanted me to go to Japan, but they didn't like the character of Lord Humongous. Evidently, someone had been to Japan with Lord Humongous and didn't do well. So they said, let's think of something else. Well, I 
timing had it for me, Robert Fuller, who had left Continental, went to Memphis and become the booker. Now, Eddie isn't, isn't in Continental anymore, and Bob Armstrong's taking over, and Bob sort of wants to be out of there because he's got three sons that he wants jobs for, right? So Bob sort of gives me my notice. Now, David comes to me and says, you don't have to go if you don't want to. I can tell Bob that you're going to stay. And I said, no, David, I'd rather really go home. Robert's got me a job at home, and I and be back around my family. So that's what I did. And we come back here to Memphis working, you know, full time. But as I came here, it's when I developed the character Sid Vicious because they wanted something different in Japan. And so that's what I did. I came up with the black vest, the black chaps, the black tights. At first, my hair was sort of greased back real short. And then I went to the, the blonde and stuff after that. So that was originated in Japan and then brought here? Well, actually, it was it started in Memphis. And that's where Japan would send in, like, their photographers. And, like, and I didn't know this, but I was taking Bruiser Brody's place in Japan. And they were grooming me for that. So they put a lot of money and time into me. Like, they send, you know, uh, uh, Fujinami and all their top guys over here just to take pictures with me at the Coliseum. So, you know, to build me up as this big star. So they brought me in you know, three weeks early just to show me tapes of Bruiser Brody and they wanted me to work just like that. So I'd go to that dojo and just kill people all day long. When I got to the little Japanese guys ran like flies, like, Oh my God, there's that big American going to kill us. I mean, we were putting pads on them. I was still killing them, you know, but, um, that's what it was. I was there to take Brody's place. and didn't even realize it, you know? So, but I had a really good, really good time in Japan, but that is a tough what place to make a living. That's what I've heard. It it's, is. They're serious. Well, they're serious, and that's not one thing. But, you know, here it is. I'm Lord Humongous, right? My whole match is three minutes, okay? So we're at the Tokyo Dome with the Russian Olympic team, and I'm working with somebody okay, who they give me this piece of paper, like three pieces of paper. And I said, man, is this the whole match? And they said, no, that's the finish. I said, guys, you are looking at the wrong person. In a three-page <laughs> Yeah, finish? I said, you guys don't know me. I, this isn't going to cut it, you know. So they learned real quick that I'm not going to pick up on that that quick. But, um, no, not just that, but it's a tough place to make a living. It's, a, it's physical. That's one thing we can all put up with. But it's just the cost of living. You know, I, I must have lost 50 pounds over there, you know, because I just couldn't afford to eat. You know, and I'll tell you what I did. I'd go to the lobby with peanut butter and banana sandwiches and the promoters felt so bad they'd take me out and buy me food they go, no 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 you can't eat here and when I figured that out I did that every night just brought a peanut butter sandwich to the lobby they go no no we'll take you for you I would be doing that yeah, too yeah, absolutely you know I was also the cool thing about it or not the cool thing I was over there when the emperor died and so we couldn't even go out of the hotel for two days because they were threatening to kill Americans you know because this is the emperor that we dropped the bomb on and um, I never forget, we were staying at Keo Plaza, one of the bigger and nicer places in Japan, in Tokyo, and all the dignitaries were there. And they'd always have like 15 armed guards with them, stuff like that. And the deal, if you stood up, they'd all draw their guns. I thought that was amusing. So I'd stand <laughs> up, they'd all stop and draw their guns at me, and they were like, sit, sit down. You know? <laughs> I said, I'd make them earn their money, goddammit. <laughs> You're keeping them on point. Keeping them on point. Absolutely. Well, how long did you, did you do work in New Japan? Well, I was there for two weeks of training and then four weeks of wrestling. And uh, I was happy to get home. So when I get home, that's when I said I, I had to deal, come back to Memphis. And, and then Eddie's, and by this time, in WCW. And then they offered me the deal, and they offered me such a good deal in WCW, I 
I just said I wasn't going back to Japan, you know. Well, they didn't want me to either. They weren't going to give me days off and pay me for me to go wrestle in Japan and get extra money too. So, and he made that simple. He said, Sid, this is a decision you got to make on your own. Do you want to you know, try to argue with the office and try to get days off to go? Or would you – because they were paying me more to stay here and, you know, work for WCW than it was go to Japan. And I was paying, you know, you know, cost of living was crazy. And so, you know, take off to go over there and you're going to lose all that weight. And I said, this is an easy decision, man. I'm staying home. I sort of got the Japanese office mad at me, but I didn't really realize that the importance. I didn't know, you know, who Bruiser Brody was or what the overtaking of that was going to be. And they didn't really waste but one month if you look at it, you know, so but they take it really too serious. Yeah. Well, uh, you, Continental was a short stay too. like One year. What? But they, that's about a, that's a pretty good one back in those days for a small territory, about a year. You know, year, year and a half, that's about it. Yeah? Yeah. So Continental and then New, J- uh, New Japan, and that's when you got to WCW. Right. You know, and I guess the question was what made you go there? We just know. It was Eddie. Eddie it was Gilbert. what he set up for you. Right. Now, um, is that, that's the point Sid Vicious was created? Right. Um, that's where I, I was doing Sid Vicious in Memphis, but that's where it really kicked off. When they got on that national stage at WCW and Turner had bought out, you know, um, the Crockett's and went from the NWA to WCW. And, man, that uh, it's just, again, that's what, you know, when I was shooting for something, it was, you know, WWF or that s- Superstation. And to me, you know, uh, the Superstation was more appealing because it was I'm still here at home. You know, I'm up in, up in New York. You know, so, I mean, and again, it was just lucky. I was just so happy to have a break no matter where it was. You know, so, again, it was just, and two, turns it out, by far, it's the 10 times better company to work for, too. You know, it's really working for a real company, not like working for a carnival, you know, like WWF was. So, it was, again, it was just, you know, again, thanks to Eddie Gilbert, and I got to thank him every day I wake up. For the Lord Humongous character, did you carry that through to Continental? Yes, that was done all. In, that was done in Kyle. right up into New Japan, and right. then then you went with Vicious Warrior. Yes. Okay. So Sid Vicious really it, it all started WCW. Right. Well, Memphis, coming from Continental to Memphis, I, I was in Memphis for about three to five months before I got the you know, break with you. Know, oh, okay. I, well, I was getting the break from Japan, leaving Continental, coming to Memphis, and so what I did was they did stuff like this. What I did, I did a loser leave town in Memphis to someone. And when I came back to Memphis, I was Lord Humongous again. You know what I mean? So then during that is when Eddie took over the book in WCW. Then I got the call from him, and then I went to Atlanta. Okay, perfect. Um, in WCW, how did they start you? Because they said, you got the history with Eddie, so he knows what you're capable of. Well, I told you. What happened was is they brought me in as you know, just trout. Then um, I, I guess, you know, Eddie, you know, saw it real quick. Okay, this guy's got a singles career, but he's not ready for it. He's got a lot to learn. So it's, he came to me and said, Sid, we're going to bring in Danny Spivey. You're going to be a tag team. Y'all going to work with the Road Warriors and all these other great. Because WCW, I think in my opinion, too, had, you know, some of the greatest tag teams. You had the Freebirds. You had the Steiners. You had Dr. Dusty Williams and uh, Terry, uh, uh, Bam Bam Gordy. Uh, uh, the other Freebird guy, I can't think of his name right now. Um Bam Bam Gordy or whatever it was. Terry, yeah. Terry Gordy. Yep. And uh, then you had, um, you know, Stan Hansen, 
Vader, and then me and Vader become tag team partners once in a while. But again, it was a great place for tag teams. And so Eddie says, we're going to make you a tag team, and uh, we're going to put you with Danny Spivey. And he, he already knows the business. He was really over strong and a really strong heel character and really knew how to get heat and also how to, you know, have some psychology in matches. So he taught me you know, when to take the bumps and when to keep my heat and things like that. You know, now through that, to be honest with you, I don't remember a lot of it because it was so much fun, you know, being there. It was like it was almost like a kid going to recess. It wasn't really – I wasn't really learning a lot because, you know, Teddy Long was doing our talking and all I had to do is just know when to come in and when to go out. And then as um, I had about – you know, I came back and got into my singles careers when I really started learning the business. Okay. I know you just said too, and I've heard other people say that when you have your partner, they, they're teaching you. How does it teach you during a match? Well, for instance, this, like I said earlier, when I worked for Memphis as Lord Humongous, I, I know uh, they're using this Sato, Japanese guy's uh, agent sort of type deal. He goes, okay, tonight you're working Soul Train Jones. We want you to get your heat. And I didn't know really what that meant. You know, so when it was time for me to beat the guy up, I was just standing around. So when I came back, he goes, Oh, you don't know where heat is? And I didn't. You know what I mean? So this is where it took the – we eliminated the possibility of error. So, you know, Eddie did that. Again, I said that before. He said, okay, this guy's going to teach you what heat is. So when Danny, who had great respect in the ring by everyone, you know, more so than I did. And so when we worked with the Steiners, we worked with uh, one of these other – the Road Warriors. These guys were intimidated with Danny. So Danny knew how to get us eaten. And, again, working with Stan Hansen as a tag partner one time, I remember I was letting – we were working a tag match against Sting and Lex, and I was letting one of them actually get a little bit of a hope spot. And, you know, Stan screams at me from ringside, don't give them nothing. I'm like, okay, you know, let's just beat him up some more. Of course, that's – everybody's got their own opinion of how to do things. But, again, I was in there with the toughest of tough guys, you know, so – when you're in there and you're trying to get over, when all these other guys are trying to get over, it's a competition. And, I mean, this isn't something to brag about. But at those television tapings at center stage, there were a lot of guys who went to the hospital. You know, some of the underneath guys, the guys that, you know, putting us over on TV, these guys earned their money, dude. That was the era of the jobbers on yes, TV. Yes, exactly. This is what I, one of the things that it didn't work. I, you know, I... I didn't understand these things. Kind of Rip Rogers and um, uh, the, the announcer for WCW. I can't remember his name right now. A little short guy. Um, Gordon Soley's jumping in my head, but no, I don't. it was after Gordon. Little short guy with dark hair. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but he was in Florida. And what they were doing was they were bringing these kids from Florida in, and putting them twenty to a van. And I say WCW might have been paying them. And paid them well, but in other companies, like maybe 250 or $500 a night to go through this. And they might have to work two or three times, you know, for that 500 bucks. Well, Dave Penzer, Dave Penzer and Rip Rogers was doing this. They were taking half their money from them. So when I found that out, I went to Ole, who I respected and I thought had, you know, liked me as well. I went to him and tried to get them both fired, but he wouldn't do it. Because I just hated that, that someone would do someone like that. Because those guys really earned their money. And this is something I did all the time. And a lot of guys, I think, will admit to this, is that, man, if you did a really good job for me, and uh, like um, Lee, I can't think of his last name, but 
everybody wanted to get him. He was like a human, you know, pinball. You could throw him across anything. Um, but when I got through working with him, I'd give him two, $300 extra every night. Really? Yeah. And I didn't do it with just him. Anybody that did a really good job for me and really went out on the limb and put, you know, put their self out there, I'd, you know, two or $300 out of my own pocket. Well, see, I think that works on two levels because a you're you're showing your your work means something, right? And these people now know if they're if they're working with you and they work, right? It's going to mean something. Well, you know, that's just some two guys, and not I'm not trying to pat myself in the back, but when you guys came here, I offered to pay your hotel room. It's just that's the way I was raised. Again, from my aunt, my grandparents, my great grandparents, I don't want anything for anything for nothing. I want to. I want, I'm going to offer to, you know, do something, you know, I just have to do that. And I, I think it was the only one that ever did that as far in the locker room, give the other guys money because, you know, one, I'm making a whole lot of money, you know, at this time I am. And these guys are again, really earning $500 the hard way, you know, and, and working with me wasn't an easy night. And so I, I gladly gave it to those guys. Now, if they didn't do a great job, I didn't feel bad about giving them nothing neither. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's it's the work ethic. It's you work, you get it. Yeah, right. So now you were talking about too, like with with the jobbers and stuff on the television tapings. I, I've heard stories, not just from you, others, but uh, other people, and in doing this, that yeah, they were really, really stiff with these people. Right. Is that was that something that? Uh, what's the best way to say it? Was this stuff that you you kind of not agreed on, but it's like it's common knowledge. Well, what in that era again? You got. Just name off the people. It was me, the Steiners, Dan Spivey, Stan Hansen, Vader, Dr. Death, the Road Warriors, and all these guys were doing multiple 15 matches with 15 clotheslines and blah, blah, blah. And my finish, the powerbomb. Now, in the beginning, I, was, I drove those guys through the ring and tried to you know, drive them through the mat. And if you, if you look back around, they would fold like accordions. And the body just doesn't do that naturally. So um, – Again, we were in competition, you know, all of us, you know, look at this guy doing this. Well, I'm going to do this, you know. And I remember sitting there laying out my matches sometimes to see, okay, from the minute I walked out that ring, I picked up that camera and I started screaming and cussing at that camera. And especially with the guys that I didn't know and I know that had been around long, I said, guys, when I, we get out there, don't I'm not going to be the guy you're talking to right now. I'm going to be this spitting, snotting, no good son of a bitch. And, don't take me seriously, man. Don't freeze up, and they did, and they froze up. It was a tough night then for them, you know, because they didn't remember anything. And so, but I tried to make it most of. I know I didn't have it three minutes, and that's walking from you know the back to the back. You know, match sometime with the time I got out there, they'd say, you know, cut it short, go forty five seconds. So, to, for me to get over, I had to use every second I could. So I find the TV, the, the camera, and I'd do an interview on the way to the ring. And then I'd find the camera in the ring and beat the guy right in front of the camera and then point it to someone else, you know. So I was an opportunist, and that, we'll talk about that in, you know, weeks to come. But that's what really got me over, guys. I took the opportunity of being a jerk. You know, I just said, okay, I'm not – I'd ask you, Rob, or like Lee or, or whoever would be working with, I'd go, man, do you mind if I slap you tonight? And they, of course, you were always told to say, never say no, right? That's right. I, they go, yeah, go ahead. And, <laughs> dude, I fire you up. And, I've, and I was waiting for you to say yes because now I'm going to do it. You know yep. what I mean? So that's how I got over a little differently than a lot of people. 
is that I, I took advantage of opportunities or and li- live ones too. When we're on live TV and I, and I say this, I've said this several times, like when I was working with Sean, we were going, I was, I knew I was going to win the title. So we were put at a podium live TV and I let him go first and said, I, I didn't care what he said. Cause I knew I was going to end everything. So he went on and blah, blah, blah. So I think it says something like this. I said, Sean, I don't know if you realize this. It's a big man sport, and you're a little bitty guy. And I says, come service land where pay-per-view. I said, I'm going to beat you, and I'm going to beat you really bad. You know, just I knew I had that, you know. So I took advantage of knowing it's live TV. They can't recut it. You know, so I said, okay, I'm going to get myself over right here. And Sean didn't mind that, you know. Well, like you said, too, he knows the business. He knows the work. He retired after uh, I put the belt back on him because he was supposed to put it back on me. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he said he broke his back. What was is uh, he just, I don't know what the case was. But he wanted, we did that show in San Antonio because that was his dream, to have a big show like that, a dome show in his hometown. And so that's what the whole thing was set up for. But what happened was when I took the belt, we started selling out. And we started setting indoor attendance records at every building we went to. So we had a nappy convention. And nappy conventions were... If you have, uh, say, a, so you sell drinks and you're going to show us how we're going to do it, we sell things at our venue, so we show everybody, you know, all these people get at these conventions. And this is the time NWO is hot, and Turner's got this big multi-deal downstairs. It looks like, you know, Turner. And we were up in some cubicle, WWF was, because at the time we were really getting beat up. And, um, but we were doing great business, drawing them, but our ratings were down. And so... I knew we were doing big business, so I told Vince, I said, we're still going to put the belt on Sean at, uh, at the Alamo Dome. He goes, yeah, he said, but then the following night, we're going to put the belt back on you. And the guys, I don't know if you know of this or not, but that's a tough deal. Now, I, I stepped on Vince as hard as anyone's ever stepped on Vince. And for him to come to me and make me his champion, I mean, I worked myself to that too. It wasn't given to me. And then, then we know his affection for Sean. And then for to have to do that, that was, a, to me, one of the greatest victories of my life. Now, again, me and Vince never got along, but we did business together. But, again, that, to me, was a victory. That I got off that whipping post. Now I'm putting him on the whipping post. And did I? <laughs> yes. Well, I think this is a good place to stop this one. We got you in WCW. We can't wait to keep going. There you go, man. Let's get to our question. All right. All right, this episode's question is coming from Pete Marsh from Blenheim, Ontario. This is like a regular thing with this guy. <laughs> yeah, he has nothing else to do. <laughs> That's right. What do you got for us, Pete? Hey, guys. Uh, Sid, uh, just wondering what your thoughts are on the uh, WWE Hall of Fame. I personally am a big fan of yours and think you should probably be there. Um, I've heard some mixed feelings on the Hall of Fame uh, by others, and I was just wondering what your your views and opinions are on it. Well, and I, I could be like everyone else to start off this saying, well, I wouldn't want to be in the Hall of Fame. They picked up someone like the Rock and Roll Express to be in there, and I didn't see the induction, but I understand that it was a really um, uncomfortable deal for the guy who uh, – I heard he was having a tough deal. I don't know if he's on drugs or whatever. But anyway, it's not that. 
uh, there's been a lot of people inducted that shouldn't have been in there, and that sort of waters things down. And I don't consider myself like being watered down, but that's not the main reason. Main reason is this. After I broke my leg, I really worked really hard to get back in shape. And had all these offers from TNA and stuff like that and turned them down. So I want to try to get one more run in the, you know, the only territory at this time because everything had been bought out by Vince was to get back there. So I know that I've got, you know, I could be irritable or not say the right thing sometimes. So I had my lawyer call the office and, and try to talk to him. And this time it was a guy named Johnny Laurinaitis was, a, was in charge of uh, talent relations. So he, he told my lawyer, he said, we're not going to talk to you. We're only going to talk to Sid. And my lawyer tried to tell him, said, well, that's why I'm talking to you because he didn't want to start off on the wrong foot saying the wrong thing. And uh, that was really, a, I thought, a smart move on me because I know I can, I, I, I've done it too many times. I've said the wrong thing too many times, which they thought, I didn't think it was the wrong thing. But again, uh, just trying to do the right thing. And for them not taking that seriously for me and not giving me a chance to solidify myself, you know, from in my own mind uh, and put myself where I wanted to be and finish up the way I'd like to have been. And how we finish up in this business, guys, is simple. We give everything we got, and I mean everything. And that means getting beat to your last two months or whatever it takes to they think they've got everything out of you. I was willing to do that, and they weren't willing to give me the chance. So I don't feel that, one, I, I deserve to be there because I didn't really finish my career. And then, two, I didn't feel like I got that chance because of them. And for that, I'm really not interested. Okay. No, that's, that's I like that. That's honest. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Pete. All right. Thank you. And uh, what are we talking about tonight for uh, our little publicity, our push? Well, tonight I'm going to talk. We've, I've said it a few times, but I've got Barry coming in in a couple of weeks, and we're fixing to go through all the places I went as a kid and all the things I did around here and the places my grandfather and great-grandfather, were, where they were from and the shacks they lived in. And uh, we're fixing to get this book, guy, and it's called Poetry in the Sand. And I've got I just for the last couple of years, you know, and I heard a guy named um, Rodney Crowell. I think he was uh, uh, Roseanne's cash ex-husband. He wrote a book, and I heard his, his story about. It. He said it took him over seven years to write the book because not finding the right writer and getting the right things down. And then uh, I think an, uh, another good example is uh, in Cold Blood with Truman Capote. I think why he did so well in that book is. He went there and met the people, saw the house, saw the town. And this, you can write things. So that's mine and Barry's approach is going to be about this book. And of all the things I've done, guys, in the wrestling business, I think this might be one of the better things I'm going to do is this book. Excellent. So this is going to cover your life? Yeah. Everything? Everything. Is it? The thing is, too, guys, uh, uh, we t- talked a little bit about it in some of our interviews on some of these podcasts, is that I've done some pretty cool stuff as a kid. You know, some of them people are going to say, wow, what are you proud of? Well, I got two DUIs in one night one time. <laughs> now, this was a back in the day that when you outran the cops, you know, I'd come right back in town and do it again because I thought that was what everybody did on Friday, Saturday night, get drunk and outrun the cops. But also I did some pretty cool stuff like soloed in an airplane at 17 years old. Yeah. So, you know, and also accomplished a lot at 17 years old just from hard work. So, and then I had a life, you know, in the early stages when we – doing all the hunting and fishing like we talked about before. That's just like the movie Stand By Me. Then I went through that phase out running the cops. It was like American Graffiti. I mean, I really believed that my life was just like that. And every little town I went to was like that. You know, I had a, you know, you know, always racing and just having a good time. 
Well, I'm excited for this book, Poetry in the Sand. Poetry in the Sand by Barry Norman. Excellent. Okay, well, that's it for this episode, Sid. Thanks a ton. Thank you, man. You've been listening to the Vicious Circle Podcast. Your host, Sid Udi. Co-host, J. Robert Bellamy. Additional research by Pete Marsh. The Vicious Circle Podcast was produced by Two Cousin Road Trip Media, a division of JX3 Media Productions. The intro music, Omega Amigo, was by The Shaman. All rights to the podcast are held by Sid Udi.